other ladies where we break down all things queer and unqueer in each episode of The Wilds. My name is Rachel, and as always, I'm joined by my wife and the love of my life, Allie. Hi, everyone. Allie, what episode are we talking about today? Today we are talking about Season 2, Episode 2, which covers Day 34 slash Day 12 on the island. So before we get into it, we always open with a spoiler content and language warning. So spoiler-wise, this is a spoiler-friendly podcast. (laughs) (laughs) Do you think I was going to say spoiler-free? Yeah, I was like, come on, Allie, get with the program. This is a new season, new us. Yes, new season, new us. No, this is a spoiler-friendly podcast. So while we're going to try and talk about season two, episode two primarily, we may bring in things or reference things that happen sort of across the season. So you haven't watched the whole season two of the wilds this might not be the place for you to come in quite yet because we may accidentally ruin some of the big surprises that happen later on content wise the wilds is a show that deals with mature subject matter sort of across all of the episodes in particular for this episode we want to do a little bit of a content warning for discussions around self-harm and suicide because those are things that are going to be coming up as well as other mature subject matter or mature themes And then finally, around language, we are going to swear. Um, And so we'll be direct quoting the show. We will also just swear in our regular lives as we record. And so there's a little bit of a language warning on all episodes of our podcast as well. So with all that being said, Rachel, are you ready to get into it? For today's episode, we've broken it into four parts. First, we're going to take you through Roth's backstory. Then we'll go spend some time with the boys on the boys' island. Then head over to check in on our unsinkable eight on the girls' island. And finally, we'll end a little bit talking about the experiment, but mostly centering on the conversation between Roth and Leah. As always, we will integrate our field note of the week as it comes up within the episode. We'll then head into quote of the week. Then we'll duke it out to identify this week's Deserted Island Partner of the Week. And then we'll wrap it up. And hopefully we'll laugh and have some fun in between. I mean, hopefully. I mean, hopefully, I don't right? think we're going to laugh at all. No, probably not. All right, let's do it. So this is our first of a couple of boy-centered episodes. And this one focuses on Roth. Essentially, the opening scene, we learn that he lives in Tijuana and he goes to school in San Diego. And so the first scene really is just him doing the border crossing, which then turns into Roth and Leah's conversation in his room post-island. We're going to save that part for later, but for now, we're just going to talk a bit about what his life looks like back home before the island. His life before was a bit of a haze. There was darkness, there was fog, and we see that he kind of gets up when it's dark outside, and he chances are he probably also returns home when it's dark outside because he crosses the border every day to and from school. And it looks to be a private school, which is an interesting callback to the girls' episodes and the girls' season one, when we know that Gretchen picked a half and half girls with public schools and half girls with private schools. The other thing we learn about him, in addition to that he travels for school, is that he has a girlfriend. So we did hear about this a little bit in episode one, but we see her in his flashback and in his story. We also see Josh for a moment or two as well. But he says that something that really helped him navigate the darkness and the haze and something that he felt made him more clear was his girlfriend, Marisol. There's something a little bit about Roth that feels similar to Leah and Dot when we learned about their backstories. And I think what I tie it to is there's this sense of 
waiting with him. Like he's waiting kind of like Leah was for something to happen, for something big to happen. But there's also this sense of him sort of going through the motions, very much like we learned that Dot did, where it's just through the kind of montage that we get or the short kind of sequence of scenes, his whole life is kind of like waking up, going to school, coming home. And then it's just a repeat over and over. And he seems to struggle a lot with navigating what that means and like figuring out who he is outside of those things because so much of his life is taken up with these big tasks, right? Like big travel to school, going to school, lots of pressures, but he's caught up in sort of the routine and I guess monotony. I said the word monotony, but the monotony of it all. The parallels between Roth and Leah and Roth and Dot are very interesting. I wrote those down too. Later on when they're on the boys' island, I feel like Roth has the same energy when he's screaming that he has a girlfriend to Kieran as when Leah is saying that she's not crazy. And both of them are like, I understand that neither of these things makes me more straight, I guess, less gay or less crazy. Mm -hmm. And they have a very similar energy, which I want to talk about a little bit later on in more detail. I also really like the dot parallel because when he gives that monologue about his life before, he talks about how the fog was so thick that he couldn't see himself it. And I wrote down the line, who is Roth living for? Mm. It takes me back to the Mateo comment that he made to Dot in season one about sometimes you live so hard for someone else you forget to live for yourself. And I, I also think there's a tie back later on when Roth is deciding whether or not he's going to trust Leah and he says that it's kind of really not worked out well for him before to depend on people. No, and I think that's a really good point. I also wrote down something, which was what drives him and what does he need to learn? I think I struggle with that with Roth's story a little bit and um, to some degree with a few of the other boys' backstories as well too. With the girls, I felt very clear about what I was supposed to be getting from it and like the depth that I was supposed to be getting to their character. And there's some ways that I feel a little bit, I've almost felt a bit more confused like seeing Roth's backstory because... I get the sense that, you know, he wants to be something or something else and and working towards that. But I just never really figured out what drives him like and what is he working towards. And also for for a lot of the characters, there's something that they're supposed to learn on the island or they're supposed to do on the island. And Rolf is one of those characters who I struggle a little bit to figure out, like, what is he supposed to be taking from that experience? And what sort of growth is he supposed to be experiencing? Well, that's interesting because the other character parallel I want to draw to is to Rachel. Rachel's also episode two, so I always like thinking about who's two versus who's two. Kind of match them. Exactly. It's a bit tricky because there's not all the boys have backstories or full backstories, and there's only eight episodes. But we're just going to go with it for now because it's very convenient for me. Let's do it. It's very convenient for (laughs) me. It's very convenient for me to make this right now. So we're going to say two-two. The convenient piece for me is that in season one, Rachel's episode, her arc was so clear. You knew what drove her. You knew that something happened and that she wasn't going to achieve the dreams that she had and she wasn't being 100% truthful with the girls. And then there's this whole narrative of her throughout season one about finding herself and... The line that Nora says to her, I don't want you to forget you. 
trying to kind of, after her identity is removed from her, that Olympic Stanford diving identity, trying to figure out who you are and the way that she's able to navigate that and and season two as well is really beautiful and important. Whereas Roth is almost going through something a little bit similar. So like his fog is also letting loose a little bit. Like he was extremely sleepy in episode one and he was also sleepy in episode two. I too am sleepy, so that really resonates with me. (laughs) But that fog is also kind of stripping away from him, too. And so, who is he? He's trying to figure out who he is. He says he doesn't know who he is. Well, I think he has issues sometimes being present. And so, being, like, very in the moment with what is going on around him. You're right. He's often kind of, like, daydreaming or thinking or separating himself and kind of weighing and thinking through things that have happened. He's like very much in his head around those pieces. And you see it throughout his backstory. You see it a bunch of times on the island. And so maybe that is like the thing that he needs to do is is to be more present in those moments. But I think there's something that we have to keep in mind about like what are the barriers that stop us from being present? Because a lot of the things that Roth is dealing with, like his intense sort of exhaustion from having to travel for school, sort of the kind of like repeat monotony of those things, like... There are things that he has to work through or he has to do or there are pressures that are sort of externally put on him, which is very in line with our sort of overall narrative from season one about like society's pressures that they put on these young adults. And so I just want to be cautious too when we're talking about this, about acknowledging that like it's hard for him to break out of that or to like learn from that or to grow from that or to move past that when he can't actually get out of that sort of routine that he's stuck in. Well, I think what you're talking about with the being cautious and talking about the routine and the monotony of his time also really connects back to the Leah comment you made earlier that in order for that to be disrupted, he needs something like what Leah was waiting on to kind of come in and change him. So I like those parallels. Continuing on with his backstory, the next time that we see him, he goes over to Marisol's house and they're looking at art together. Later, he's joined by Marisol's mom and followed by Marisol's dad. And essentially, they invite him to an art gallery thing on the Thursday night, where it's a fundraiser with the objective of bringing Indigenous art out of the States and back into Mexico. After the invitation is extended, we see a brief scene of them outside in Marisol's backyard, and they have a conversation by the pool. And you can also see the beautiful home that they have as well. (laughs) <laughs> i don't know it's like the cinematography it's like here's his home cool well also like when you pan to that scene he's like looking at like an inner courtyard that's full of fronds well it's like it's it's very reminiscent of when we see fatten's house mm-hmm. and and we kind of uh when fatten's like outside and the barbecue's going on and you kind of see the full scale of her house and you're like oh shit like fatten you're like your family has a lot of wealth. They like do a very good job through the cinematography of really underlining that fact. I think this scene at Marisol's house is one of my favorite of all of Roth's backstories. There's something that the show is saying that's a little bit bigger than even the show and that they're speaking between this tension that exists between two worlds. 
And so there's this tension between sort of this this life that Roth lives in Mexico and then Marisol's life in the U.S. And there's a little bit of a sense in it of like Roth wanting to work towards that life or move towards that life. But on the flip side, Marisol's family kind of romanticizes the world that Roth lives in. So you see that with sort of like the discussion around like um, the artwork that they have, the capturing of these beautiful moments of what they would define as sort of like an authentic life in Mexico, right? And as they would define as sort of like an authentic life overall. But there's this tension in there because like Roth also exists in that world. It's very similar. There's there's something that kind of exists like in my community, which is like this tension between like urban indigenous people and like people on the res, right? And so both like indigenous, but like very different life experiences and like look at the life experiences and, and, and sort of hold up the life experiences of each other in different ways. It's this kind of um, this kind of thing, though, where the worlds are so different that they're really hard to reconcile together. And that's something like Marisol could be a whole case on herself of some of the things that she she does in those spaces and and works through in those spaces. But I think it's probably really challenging for Roth to be in those places and to be a part of those conversations because the the discussions around the repatriation of art, while very important, are so outside of the scope of his sort of day-to-day life and the day-to-day life that his family has. And it's interesting because I think it goes back to some extent to his comment to Leah or Leah's comment to him. They both commented to each other (laughs) being lost in a lost place. For sure. So later in his backstory, you see that, especially when he's talking to his parents, the first line he usually says back is in Spanish, and then he switches to English. And there's a field note about this, about how his mom really misses when he speaks Spanish as well. So there's that where you can see in his language the way he's trying to some extent to adopt and move towards this like American dream, if you will. But on the other side, at the border later on when he reruns that person, they call him a brat. So he's kind of lost to some extent between these two worlds. And you see it come up in a lot of different ways and the scene is one of them. Well, it's the sense of like not belonging in either, right? And so he doesn't quite belong in this world that like Marisol inhabits, but also like as he's sort of moving and maybe taking on like more like US-based language or whatever that looks like, right? Like while as he's taking on some of those things, like it also distances him from like the place that he came from too. And that's like a really hard thing for him to like bring together and reconcile. I think Marisol's thing with art is really interesting too, because she sees all this beauty in art, but she doesn't necessarily always see the beauty in like Roth as well too. And so she's almost like so caught up in looking at these paintings that she isn't always aware of the things around her. There's multiple instances in this scene and in later scenes where Roth is talking to her and she's kind of in her own world where her whole focus is on the art pieces that are in front of her. And she doesn't always see the people around her or connect with the people around her in meaningful ways because of that. This I think is like really tied to everything that goes on with the bracelet that the two of them share. So we learned in episode one that they both have matching bracelets that they're supposed to wear. And in this scene is one of those instances where Roth is wearing his and Marisol is not. And she's kind of a little bit flippant about it when she talks about it. She says she, you know, took it off in the shower and forgot about it. But you get the sense that it's something that kind of happens quite a bit. And 
That idea of forgetting is really big for Marisol too. She talks about it with the paintings and this idea about like if something wasn't painted, if it wasn't immortalized, that that moment would be forgotten or that moment would be lost. And similarly, she has this object, this object that ties her and Roth, but she forgets to wear it and doesn't recognize the ways that that harms him and doesn't realize the way that she's reinforcing fleeting moments and the non-permanence of tenuous things. And that's like a hard thing for for Roth, right? Like, because I like my question is, is like, what does the bracelet mean to him? And I feel like for him, it's a symbol that shows that he means something to someone and that he means something to someone like her. And so when she sort of doesn't wear it or doesn't kind of value it in the same way, it diminishes his feelings and it diminishes him as a person into something that can be forgotten. Ding, 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 ding. <laughs> what are you dinging? Why do you think I might be dinging? I actually have no idea. It is time for Allie's first dictionary request to define of the season. Oh. Ding, 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 ding. Yeah, we've never dinged before. That's well, not I'm real. trying it on for season two. <laughs> I'm trying a new thing today. I'm okay? trying a new thing. Let me know if you like the dings. Uh, tenuous is a word that I know. It's close to a lot of words that I like. Like tedious <laughs> and tendons. But I don't really know. I don't know if I could define it. Can you tell me what tenuous means? So tenuous is like, it's like a not strong connection. So if you say something is like tenuously connected, it's um, the connection is like easily broken. Like a it's, tendon? Yeah, I guess it's like, it's like very thin. And so it's something that could, that could easily be kind of cracked or broken or split. Thank you for that. And I think it's interesting in the context of the bracelet because he is someone who's looking to connect with something. And so he invests a lot of importance in things and people that make him feel connected. And so, of course, that's a symbol and it's a very important symbol. And we even hear about it in episode one when he talks to Seth about it and says, it might have only mattered to me. But on the flip side, we also see him really, really searching for it on the island as well, which I'm sure we'll talk more about later. There's a couple of different ways you can look at it. You can look at that bracelet as something that's tying him to home and tying him to Marisol. And so it's it's kind of like a symbol in that way. But I think it's like, yeah, it's bigger than that. He's tied it in, in certain ways to his own self-worth. And that, that concern about like, what does that mean when you don't have that sort of connection anymore? I also wanted to say, too, there's an interesting kind of callback sentence. There's actually like quite a few in season two. Rachel and I have been tracking them. But when Roth is talking to Marisol, he says to her, you're floating away on me. It's very similar to what Fatten says to Leah um, on the island toward the end of season one, when Leah's kind of like very much in her head and Fatten feels like she's losing Leah a little bit, which is you're going dark on me. It's just the way the sentence is structured and the way it's kind of said feels like this callback, feels like this sense of something going on with someone that's so big and, and kind of outside of your realm of understanding or your realm of knowledge that you feel a disconnect happening between you and that person. The one other thing that I wanted to say about this scene, uh, Rachel mentioned that they go outside kind of after the conversation with Marisol's parents and things. And Marisol kind of says to Ralph, she really pushes him to talk about what his passion is. So we've sort of seen that her passion is art and like the revitalization of culture. And she asks him, what is his passion with the implication that, you know, he doesn't have one. 
Rolf kind of responds and, and sort of dances around it a little bit. But I think through everything we've seen, we, we kind of realize that like Marisol is Rolf's passion. And so this is really tied to his, you know, maybe like not knowing where he's going or knowing um, what he's building towards. But like she is this thing that is so important to him that he holds her on the same regard as he would a piece of art for Marisol. She's very dismissive of this. And I think there's something that's really important in this is... The idea of having a passion, the idea of having something that you pursue, that you're passionate about, that you focus on, is a luxury. It's a privilege. It's a privilege, right? And she's not very cognizant of that in this moment. She's just like, she she looks at it as him not having focus or determination or something that he's working towards and not seeing all the things that exist as barriers for him. We find out at some point through this that Roth has quit soccer assumingly so that he can spend more time with Marisol. And so he gave up this thing that maybe she would value as a passion to be able to spend more time with her. She doesn't like hold that safe or she doesn't like value that in a way that I think is like really, really unfair. And I think the way that she wants more from him and and wants something from him that I don't know if makes sense for him to give, it, I just don't think it's fair. And I think she only wants him to fit into her world and only cares about his opinions as they exist in relation to sort of her world. Well, it's interesting that you're saying that because it's in the context of two comments that her mom makes to him. So the first one being when he's eating the canapes that she knows that he has good taste Mm. is one of them. And then later on when they're driving him back home, she says something along the lines of Marisol will get your homework for you so you don't fall behind on school. I know that's important to you. Mm-hmm. And so it's interesting because, I don't know, to me, I would say that like somebody pursuing school and getting up every morning extremely early to yeah. like pursue this education that they got to on a scholarship and like their whole life being kind of upended as a result is a passion and it's a sacrifice, right? Like... I guess there's like a there's an interesting spectrum between like passion and sacrifice. I don't know if they're on the same if one's on one end and one's on the other, but no, in your thoughts on that. No, I think that you're hundred percent right. And like that's what I mean though, she doesn't value those things. So there's a way that Marisol doesn't see Roth. And I think like what you said about that's a good catch about his mom seeing that in him and seeing how important school was to him, because I don't think that Marisol sees that. And it really goes into this way that she like looks at Roth almost like a thing that's kind of with her. And no, we only see her very shortly, so I don't want to like <laughs> I don't want to like put yeah I don't want to like put too much shit on her. But she sees him more as this thing or this this I think she's a person, but like she she doesn't see all the nuanced pieces that makes him who he is. The next part of Roth's backstory is the part where we find out that he quit soccer. Ali. <laughs> Sorry, team. But I'll say it again. Yeah. Of course, it's weaved into some other things. And so he comes down looking all sharp, dressed in a suit. He wants to go to the gallery night on a Thursday night. Thursday nights is also when his dad works the third shift and he's supposed to help out at his mom's tamale shop. They have a bit of a back and forth about response like responsibility essentially and if he's able to go in to see marisol and then they talk a bit about how the lives might not be compatible in the long run ultimately he does take the tamales to the truck 
but he gets in his car and heads towards the gallery fundraiser. And see, this scene reminded me of Fatten. It reminded me of some of like the arguments that Fatten's parents had. I think it, it comes from a different place, but the same sort of like high expectations or high level of responsibilities or high weight of responsibilities that sometimes people have to carry where Rolf just wants to go to this thing, but his parents also need his help because they're working so hard to like help support him through school. So I think it comes from a little bit of a different place because like money's not obviously as much of an issue in Fatten's house as it seems to be in Rolf's house. But that that kind of sense of of an overwhelming responsibility was just kind of hung over this entire scene. Also, like typical teenage behavior to like ask for forgiveness. Like he knew he's going to this thing. He's like in his tux. He's coming downstairs. He knows he has to do this thing on Thursday night. But he's just like, he's like, oh, yeah, I'm going to this. You know, I just figured that, you know, I'm dressed. You can't say no. Well, and it's it's nice because, like, he does have some independence, right? Like he can drive. He has a passport. He has his own car. See you later. Oh, yeah. I think something that's important to pull out of this is we just talked about that idea of forgetting something and about how that bracelet, you know, and and Marisol not wearing it maybe reinforces this idea that Marisol could forget Roth. His parents also reinforce it through this scene. His dad specifically says that girl is going to forget you. He goes on to say that uh, her family's going to forget him. And it just reinforces this sense that Roth is worthless to Marisol's people, right? And to those people who are kind of like outside of that sort of like realm that he grew up in, outside of these familial connections and this place that he's rooted. I think it's really hard to see, right? Because these are insecurities that it it feels like Roth already has. And then to have them be sort of thrown back in his face in this moment, obviously it's coming out of a place of like hurt for his parents. And I think there's like... There, there has to be feelings for them about the rejection of like language and culture that that Roth is doing. And even um, we talked a little bit already about how he speaks English and they're speaking Spanish. And so it's like this this conversation where like they're both literally speaking different languages and also like understanding, too, that English like his parents probably don't practice English that much. So they're also in an uncomfortable situation in that where they do speak English, but are trying to like also translate because it's their second language and so there's just this i don't know this like sense of almost like a battle that's happening between the three of them but is like underlying two at the same time well and it's 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 tough too because they're also fighting with each other too it's not just roth who is being contrary i guess like he kind of throws it back on his parents and says isn't this why i'm in this fancy school to like meet people like this and do things like this so it's interesting to just see it kind of what he does mitigated or managed in that way, I guess. And I guess it's because there's like familial responsibilities and those take precedence and the same way that Fatten's responsibilities take precedence sometimes too. So I do really like that parallel, but it's interesting the way that they're speaking different languages and they're also kind of arguing with each other too. I think I had a little bit of question in here too about like, why did Roth even go home? Right. We know this is a Thursday night. It's a school night. It would have taken him a very long time to cross the border. And then he has to change and cross back. It's a little bit confusing as to why he wouldn't just change at school or go to Marisol's house after she knows she he crosses the border. So it's not like it's going to be a, a thing. Right. And so like, was he I mean, it could just be like a, a story tactic that the writers were like, well, we need this confrontation to happen. But also, like, was he looking for that kind of argument with his parents? Because he knew it was going to be an argument going into it. 
Yeah, I wonder if there could also be like weird visa rules or something too. Like I, he mentions having a visa. I don't know if there's like a school visa where it's like you need a something from the school if you're. I don't know oh, if you're staying. Right? Yeah, yeah, I don't know enough about. You wouldn't think so because like, it would be so common, right? Yeah. Well, and also like we know that he played soccer after school, so yeah. think games go late sometimes, and like he would stay over. Like I think as long as he's like, there's probably like he probably can't stay more than like 24 or 48 hours. We can look this up later. Yeah, <laughs> but yeah, we will. Look this up <laughs> we later. will look this up later. <laughs> so the next part of the story arc is just a continuation of that night. We see him head to the border, which is very, very busy. And ultimately, because he's not really paying attention, he ends up rear-ending the person in front of him in line. This doesn't end well for him, and we see him end up getting arrested and eventually spending the night in jail. When he's given the opportunity to make a phone call, he does call home first, but then he says that no one was home to the border guard. And so it does seem like he ends up calling Marisol instead. The last thing that we see with his arc is that Marisol's family are driving him back home, seemingly. They have a conversation about figuring out his visa stuff, and then he's not able to return to the States until that's sorted out. At that point, he is given the passageways card from Marisol's dad, along with the language that there's an expert there who can help with customs and border protection, or the CB if he needs it yeah I think it's it's a hard moment when he calls home and his dad's on the phone and you know his dad kind of he kind of asks who it is and then he kind of flips over he realizes which I mean is this underlying sense that like his parents are probably worried about him and they're probably scared about him and like don't know what's going on with him but he doesn't speak to them and so it's trying to like navigate like where does that come from like does it come from that place of shame that he did that Um, does it come from like a concern that like they wouldn't be able to help him or wouldn't help him at all we don't really get enough of Rolf's backstory to really unpack and understand his relationship with his parents other than that sort of very tense scene that we saw before but which had a very specific context attached to it but I think it's interesting he calls Marisol's family too because I mean you get the sense that like Rolf isn't close to a lot of people he doesn't have like a lot of friends really and a lot of this is about this this weight that he's carrying, these these steps that he's having to take forward, similar to Rachel Wright, who didn't have a lot of a circle outside of her family. But I think also, like, even calling them must have been, like, tied up in, like, a little bit of this sense of, I mean, they're going to have to come and pick me up from immigration. But you don't even really get that sense from him in the car. He just has, like, a little bit more, like, gratitude, I guess. I don't know. What did you kind of think? It's interesting because I think there'd be shame on both sides. And it's an interesting choice that he went with Marisol's parents. On the one hand, with his parents, there'd be the shame of having to come and pick him up. Especially when he was the defiant one and got himself into a bad situation. But on the other hand, Marisol's family, they're quite well off. And they're a little bit different. And so you worry that it might change how they see him. Mm-hmm. Or that, you know, there might be something on his record or something like that that would not necessarily fit in with the narrative that he wants to be a part of, but also that the family narrative that Mm -hmm. he's probably built up in his head as well. And the family narrative, I think, that we see. We don't see a lot, so again, we're making a lot of generalizations, but there's shame on both sides. And so I don't know if it's like an understanding or if it goes back to they're going to forget about me 
so maybe I should just kind of rip the Band-Aid off. They're going to find out anyways. Let's take them up on this offer. I don't know. Or if he does feel like that sense of closeness to them and feels like they trust him or believe in him more than that. I don't know. What do you think? It's like a little bit of like a savior-y complex too, I think. Like, or he's like, they're the people like, mm. like he, he puts them on a pedestal. So he's obviously in a lot of trouble and he's like this is these are the people who can make that trouble go away which is really connected to with what we see in the car where marisol's mother hands roth a card saying that the person on the other end of this will be able to help with immigration and it's a card for passageways um so you kind of like start to get that sense of of, or you start to understand the reasoning or like how roth got to the point where he went on the retreat well, I just think it's it's a great way to do it so early in the season because we see it has the branding, a very similar situation to how Dot got to the retreat. Something I find interesting about it is that I don't know what the cell would have been to his family. It's like because it's so tied to Marisol's family and that's where he's given it. I mean, maybe he lied, maybe he wasn't truthful. Who knows? But I think a little bit in this context about how did he go from that card to being on the plane? So my thing is all of the boys in very much in contrast to the girls had some like legal trouble for the most part that happened with them. And so I don't think that this is like a, like, I don't think it's like a choice in like a, Oh, like I'd love to go on this. Like let's convince. I feel like it's being pitched as like, um, like as a part of, a lighter sentence or whatever that they have to go and do this retreat if you think about kind of all of their stories there are these sort of like really charged and like kind of like institution involved or police involved or immigration involved moments and i'm wondering if like this is like the pathway out of this because they're all kind of excited about doing it um, and it's just sort of a different way to get there than the girls necessarily did but i do wonder because we talked a lot already um, or we've started to like plant the seeds to talk about like who paid for people to go. And so we learn later that Josh's parents paid for him to go. I'm a big proponent that Fatten's parents paid for her to go. Do we think that Marisol's parents paid to send Roth? And does Marisol know and think this will help him find his passion? I mean, maybe. Maybe. I do think that there's a connection between Marisol's dad and Gretchen. Yeah. They only Also can... California. It's more California. That's true. <laughs> the only connection I have is that they both use the word stateside. So he says to Rolf, you can't return stateside until after this is. And Gretchen says that she's headed back stateside. Yeah, secretly it's, it's a regular thing that people say, but we just never hear it in Canada. So we're yeah. like, everyone keeps saying stateside. That seems like a thing. Yeah, that seems like a thing. It seems like very specific and they're siblings. Whoa! Now we're now we're really now we're really making making some jumps. Yeah. (laughs) Marisol is so cold though in the car to Roth. It's like really hard because he just went through this very traumatic kind of experience. Like he was. It seems like he was held overnight. Like he's been. You know, he might not be able to come back to school, and she's just so disconnected from him. And it just makes me feel bad for Roth. But he still, like, wants her, like, love and affection. So he's just, like, seeking it. And she's just, like, I don't know, like, talking about music. As always. As always. Ugh. <laughs> Anyways, I don't think Marisol's getting our honor of favorite secondary character. No, I don't think so. I think that's fair. So I'd like to shift us over into talking a little bit about the events that happened this episode on the boys' island. I've divided it into sort of, like, three kind of mini arcs. 
um, which is the pre-walk. So before Seth and Rolf go on their walk, the actual walk, and then sort of the post-walk stuff. It's It feels like a weird throwback to like when we used to be able to do like journey arcs with the girls, like when they climbed the mountain or went on the plane swim. And so, I don't know. We're the only people in the world that call it the plane swim. <laughs> the plane swim. <laughs> um, but I thought about it made kind of like the most narrative sense. So opening up in that pre-walk sort of sequence, we see Rolf on the beach, and he has a bit of an altercation with Kieran, who accuses Rolf of watching him swim unclothed. Something that becomes really clear throughout this sort of section is like there's very clear divisions that still exist between the boys. We do see them a little bit later sitting also in a circle together and talking about being out of food. And you see a little bit of that that reality setting in that rescue may not be coming. They do seem to try to build relationships a little bit. They play a game. They play two truths and a lie. But it goes very badly. Roth tries to make some jokes. Does not go well. Kieran twists it. Roth ends up getting upset and takes off. Yeah, I mean... I don't really know what the whole altercation with Kieran was about because Kieran's been going around being like, something's wrong with my dick. (laughs) And like now he's like, why are you looking at my dick? Like if something was wrong with someone's dick, even as a lesbian, I'd be like, "Mm, what's that looking like? All I wrote in my notes is, wow, we talk about penises a lot. So much. That's the thing. The lesbians would be happier with the show if, like, the boys, like, if the boys would be there, but just not talk about penises so much. Like, I understand maybe it's about like. Well, maybe it's about, like, authentic experiences of masculinity or whatever. And I do think that boys talk about dicks a lot, but I do, like, look, here I am talking about them. But (laughs) I do think that, like, it's a little bit much. Kieran's an interesting character, and he's interesting throughout for lots of different reasons. But it's really interesting to just take a look at the conversations that he has and who he lets speak and who he silences. Mm Mm-hmm. And so he silences a lot of people in lots of different ways throughout this episode, but he has a big dialogue with Roth. And Kieran's approach to relationship building is also a bit of throw a bunch of shit at the wall and see what sticks. And I think it goes back to Seth's comment a little bit later on when they're talking in the woods, which isn't a go back, it's a go forward, (laughs) about just trying to map him and trying to like see what's making him tick because... As they talk about in that conversation, they haven't said a lot of words. I think it was 11 words, if I'm not mistaken. Well, just my question was, like, why does Kieran go after Rolf like that? Rolf asks a very similar question of Kieran, and Kieran's kind of response is, I don't know shit about you. Which, like, also, I'm, like, thinking, still? Like, we're on day 12, and, like, that's what I mean, though, is, like, the divisions between the boys are still so prominent, and they haven't really started to build relationships outside of the core group that they came with. There's still just kind of, like, a lot of, like, I don't know, like, pissing matches going on. Like, they're still fighting for power in weird ways, like, especially Seth and Kieran in particular. Yeah, it's, it. they're just so divided. And also, I don't know, I just, like, identify with like Roth in this because like I zone out while staring at random shit all the time. I don't even think his head was turned no, towards. No, he wasn't. If you his look head at his wasn't face, e- yeah, his yeah. head wasn't even turned towards Kieran and I was like He's I mean, genuinely surprised. Yeah. It's interesting that you talk about how it's day 12 because the girls day 12 is episode 6, also known as Muscle Beach Day. <laughs> Muscle Beach Day. But it's interesting just as you talk about relationships at that time, when I think back to Muscle Beach Day, I'm remembering Fatten holding Tony Mm -hmm. 
And that is such a different vibe than anything we saw in this episode. Well, Muscle Beach Day is also the day that Shelby uh, said that she didn't think it was okay that Tony was gay. And then like all the girls ganged up against Shelby. True. There was already like very strong kind of like relationships. There had been like side journeys. There had been like little teams of them that had built and created. We'd already gone and rescued Fatten. Like there was... uh, there was a lot of stuff that had happened for them and a lot of relationship building that had happened. And you just kind of get the sense that none of that has happened for the boys at all. Yeah, fuck off, Susan. Still not this episode, but it's coming. <laughs> I can't wait till we get to the Susan comments. I'd actually like to start, uh, Rachel's only a somewhat fan of this, but like to uh, start a new segment of the mm-hmm. podcast, which is called Susan's Corner. And it's where we just talk about like where the boys are versus where the girls are. We're, like we're not starting the corner. <laughs> I have all my stuff written down. No, we're not. This isn't Susan's Corner. I think it's the perfect time to talk about it. No, get you. It's what does the top of that sheet page say? (laughs) What the girls had done by day 12. Does Susan's Corner appear at all on that page? Yes. No. Okay. You may continue. I, I do want to kind of talk about Susan's Corner right here, right now, because I think it is really interesting to compare the boys to the girls. And so in this... mutiny in the ranks. <laughs> and so in this moment um, and on these scenes on the beach, we kind of see them all sort of like sitting together. Like I said, they're still very divided. They're hungry. They haven't, they have no water. They're like, they've no drive to go do something. At least like they're sitting in a group together, I guess. And in they're, the sunlight. And they're maybe, they're going to play a game. They're going to play two truths and a lie. The girls started playing like team building games on night one. They fought over which icebreaker they were going to play. Yeah. They just wanted to break the ice so badly. But I always want to keep in mind too, that, you know, when we, when we worked through the girls, like the days were more evenly paced out. There are big jumps in this. Like we jumped from day one to day 12. And so like keeping in mind where we see the boys in this episode, I think it's like helpful to think about all of the shit that the girls did by the time they hit day 12. As Rachel mentioned, that was episode six. So by that point, they had gathered supplies. They had created an inventory. They'd climbed the mountain. They had swung out to the plane and, and gotten supplies from there. They had looked for an alternative camp. They'd found the cave. They had moved to that camp. They moved back when that camp didn't work. They had their shelter building contest, so they built shelters. Um, they had voted for the first time. We don't see the boys vote until later on. They'd also established routine and responsibilities, so they had their chore chart. They had found water, right? Fatten went in episode five and found water. Um, they had come together to look for Fatten. All the girls had to kind of team up to do that. They saved Rachel from the sink pit. And then they also had that medical crisis that they had on day 12 where they had to kind of take care of each other. But at least at that point, like they were finding food. Like they had started scavenging for berries and stuff, but like it made them sick. But Rachel went uh, diving for those mussels. So they were starting to find alternative sources of food too at that point in time. I mean, that lit, like, I feel warm now. Like, that, like, I was an anti Susan's Corner, but that was, like, a very nice list. Yeah, well, we're only calling it Susan's Corner because Susan is a dick about the boys being better later. And exactly. I'm like, just you wait, Susan. Yeah, we have a corner for this. I also think day 12 was a turning point because Leah was dishonest. Dot was very scared. We talked a lot about that when we did that episode. And I think they really came together and relied on each other from that point onward. To some extent, until the the conflict on the beach when Dot took a day off. The other time that she did leisure, if you will. My only question is, it says day 12 of the episode title. Yeah. 
But there's a weird mention in that conversation between Kieran and Roth about how they've been together for four days. So I'm like, is it day four? Is it day 12? What day is it? Yeah, I think there's like two kind of ways you can look at it. Number one, like they often say like they make fun of Kieran a little bit for like using idioms wrong and stuff like that. And so like I'm like, is like is Kieran just like oh, we've been together for like four days or whatever. I think there's also maybe this sense of like an extended purgatory that exists too on the island where like- We they made don't... it two episodes without <laughs> the mention of purgatory. Pur- I think I talked about it last episode, but where they're they're kind of in this standstill space. Like they don't have a Nora actually tracking days. So that's the only reason the girls ever know what day it is. But so like, have they just not been tracking days? And like, it just feels like each day blends into the next day and- you know, and that's why Kieran messed up. It also could be an editing issue if there was originally going to be a day four and then episodes got cut. I'm not sure, but uh, I don't like those are all my possible solutions for. So if anyone else has one too, feel free to reach out. But I don't know if you have another possible reason. Now you've exhausted all of my ideas and you added a couple extras. As always. As always. (laughs) Yeah. Anyways, I wrote it down too. And I was like, that's a weird, it's a weird thing. If you listen to season one, you know that Rachel and I were both camp counselors. So like when they played Two Truths and a Lie, I was like, I want to play Two Truths and a Lie. I like, that's all I want to do right now. I briefly considered playing as a part of the podcast, but I don't think I have. Rachel would figure me out. Too tricky. Yeah. Unless we're colluding. Yeah. It's the problem when you try to play games with someone you've been in a relationship with for 12 years. She would be like, these are, none of this is true. I think the only piece I want to talk about pre-walk is that we learn about spills which is interesting in the context of we know that Nora also had a Finsta. That was one of the field notes of the week from season one. Yeah. So we have another person who has some Insta fame. Who are both Confederates. <gasps> who have secret kind of like accounts. Yeah. The only piece I'm interested in your thoughts on. I mean, sorry. I mean, yeah, I'm interested in your thoughts on lots of things. But I want you specifically to talk about this. I guess you're the only person I can ask. So it's kind of a default. It's, it's you or nothing. <laughs> or we don't talk about it. Or we don't. Um, and then if I, I, I can't ask other people because this is my this is my vehicle. This is it. <laughs> so Ask your question. Go for it. I find the spills piece really interesting because it automatically gives Seth, at least to Josh, mm-hmm. more pull or influence or this pedestal. Mm-hmm. And to my knowledge, there isn't really anything in the girls' island where one person has more pull or status. What are your thoughts on that? There are a lot of ways that I think that Seth as the Confederate is problematic. And I think he has a thing with power. And like, this is something that gives him sort of like a little bit more power on the island. And he often seeks power and seeks to kind of be that person. And so, I mean, I don't know if Gretchen knew about their kind of like secret Finsta accounts. I have no idea. But it, I agree, it does give him power. It's also like the first establishment of sort of this looking up thing that happens with Josh where Josh really idolizes Seth and really kind of like wants to be him and it's really this vehicle that pushes their relationship forward because Josh thinks that Seth is the coolest person in the entire world at this point in time right and like wants to be like him he talks about interning for spills and it uh, it really moves Seth from even footing with the boys to which I would argue I'm not sure if he was ever on even footing with the boys to something that's definitively more uneven 
Now, something that I will say is interesting is Seth is the person who takes the picture, but it is actually Henry who talks about spills. It's not actually Seth that brings it up. So, I mean, you could argue maybe that Seth was never going to say that that's what he took the picture for, but it definitely differentiates him. I don't know if those thoughts were what you were looking for. I mean, I would like some other thoughts. (laughs) (laughs) No, those thoughts were lovely. I would love other thoughts too, because I think it's interesting because it does create a difference in power. And there are differences in power regardless, right? Like everyone situates himself a little bit differently. Gretchen talks about it in season one after the journey to the top of the mountain, right? She says that they're differently organized and that changing group dynamics exactly peaceful transitions of power so like gretchen's really interested in power there's power in every kind of social encounter right so it's just this very overt display of power and this very like overt tangible thing that you don't really see as much in the girls It, it is also a little bit of like a vehicle too to underline like the sense that Roth has of un, like of not belonging, right? And so there's a lot of ways that both Roth and Josh are trying to belong in that group, are trying to build meaningful relationships or build rapport with people. It's hard with the group of boys in particular. There's a lot of like, there's a lot of like, there is a little bit of like shifting like power, but there's also like a lot of volatility to things. And so jokes land one day, but then a similar joke, depending on the mood of the person who has the dominant voice at that time, maybe doesn't land. And so it's a little bit of like shaky, unsettling ground. And you can even feel this in this sense where Roth and Kieran are getting a little bit in each other's face because Kieran's saying that thing that Roth said was a lie was actually true. And Roth is trying to kind of defend himself. And then when the salsa spills, the whole conversation shifts away from Roth to Seth. I don't think that like Roth is upset that the conversation shifted away from him, but he's upset that like he wasn't able to resolve that conversation or or come out of that conversation in a different way. He wasn't able to like defend himself in a different way. And I think there's um, this sense with like people like Roth and Josh where they're interesting to a point, but then they get pushed aside. And it's often like Kieran and Seth in particular who are taking that sort of spotlight in those moments. So when Roth takes off, he goes for a walk in the woods. He has a piece of stick that he's kind of like smashing on trees. You know, he's got some feels. He's in his feels. He's got he's got some stuff going on. And in that moment, he accidentally like his bracelet flies off of his wrist. And so he loses his bracelet in the woods, obviously panics, tries to find it. And in the process of trying to find it, steps into a fire ant nest. Thankfully, Seth appears out of nowhere to help Roth get the fire ants off him. And the two of them kind of sit down to have a little bit of like a conversation. And it's it's one of those moments where we see Seth kind of conscientiously checking in on Roth, which I'd like to talk about in just a second. After that, the two of them head off in search of food. Um, in particular, they're looking for like berries or something like that. Um, But what they actually find is an underground bunker that has a crap ton of supplies in it. Also excited to talk about that. I think you've hit on the right points to talk about. The only thing I will say is that argument for it being day four and not day 12 is that his shoes are still extremely clean. Mm. And he is also sponsored by Vans, like Tony. Like Tony, there's their van van people because his shoes are like pristine going in. But on the other hand, they've also done nothing. So this is the first time they're going in the woods. So 
That could be why as well. But there's no way that this scene isn't day 12. Because everything that happens with the boys is the morning scene. This, the stuff on the beach, this walk, which happens right after. And then they go to the bunker and they bring stuff back. Right. So you could argue that the first scene with Kieran maybe is day Day four. four. But anything after they're sitting in that circle has to be day 12. Okay. But sponsored by Vans. I'm into that. I'm into that. (laughs) I'm into that. I'm into that distinction. Yeah. We've already talked quite a bit around Roth's bracelet and like how it's a symbol that he's loved. So I don't think that we need to to chat any more of that. I want to talk a little bit about the ants because I think it was it is very reminiscent of when Shelby went for her walk and encountered the snake. Except it's one of those moments of danger, but I'm not really like it kind of felt a little bit without meaning to me. Like it gave Seth an opportunity to kind of come in and save Roth in the same way that Dot came in and saved Shelby when the whole snake situation happened. But that moment was really like it. I guess they both brought them together, though, right? Like they both gave them that moment to kind of like talk and really sort of open up a little bit about the trauma that they faced. Okay, that's fine. Never mind. I was going to be like, they're not similar at all. I started talking about it. You just talked yourself out, like into and out of something. I didn't even help you. You're just like, "Mm, I figured it out. Episode three of the podcast will just be me talking to myself for two hours. It's going to be great. No, nobody wants that. Also, respectfully, would it be two hours? It would be like a day and a half. (laughs) You're, You're the only reason we keep this on track. There's a really important part of this sort of bonding moment that happens between Seth and Raph, which is Seth talks to Raph about mapping. And so in particular around thinking a little bit about how Seth feels that Raph might be hard for other people to map. And that might be why he's having like a little bit of friction in the group. But what Seth specifically says is unknowns are crazy scary and this island is a big gaping unknown. And I mean, no offense, but so are you. Uh, But people just want to put other people on the map. Take my stepbro Henry, for instance. He's the prince of fucking darkness, but you can still map him. Got the e-boy is a known quantity, which makes him extremely unscary. But you're a different story, you know? I mean, we just got to get you on the map. What he's like really speaking to is like stereotypes and boxes. Like he uses the word mapping, which is like a lovely way to put it. But like he, he's talking about making Roth recognizable and so that there's an ease of comparison. So people look at him, see him as something like known and familiar and are more comfortable with him, which is like a weird, uncomfortable thing in general. But It also is like very contrary to what happened with the girls where we spent all of season one, like we saw them in their boxes and then we've broken them out of their boxes and seen sort of the layered nuance of what makes them into human beings. So the girls are really breaking out of that. But here we have Seth really being a proponent that we should be putting Roth back in a box and like sort of like defining out the edges of him to make other people in that group more comfortable. It's interesting in the context of what Seth says about the other boys during this conversation. So he says, you should get some cream from Josh and talk to Scotty and Bo about the fire ants because they're from the Florida sticks. And so he ties them to like this utility type of concept, but then he ties Henry to gothy e-boy. And so it's just very interesting the boxes that are people are being put in. And I guess for Roth, the argument can be made, you don't really know the kind of personality stereotype or the utility stereotype. 
but I really like what you said about the girls. We put them into stereotypes and into these boxes, and then we spent the whole season breaking them apart. Whereas it's almost the reverse, especially when it's Roth's storyline here, where we're coming to know him, and he gets the most detailed backstory, I guess, of I th- all. Of I think the he does. Boys. Yeah. And then we're kind of trying to like jam him in this box somewhere too. Mm-hmm. And this is the second time that Seth has kind of singled Roth out. And this time he kind of like finds him in the woods. And so we understand that like Seth is actually working quite hard to build a connection with Roth and, and to build a relationship with Roth. And it, it's really reminiscent to me of season one and the way that Nora did that with Leah there's all these moments where like Nora's almost like checking in on Leah and we've always really connected it to, you know, maybe being flagged to Nora that there was some danger for Leah on the island, especially to not be doing well. And that's why she connected with her. And so my question is, is like that the same thing? Like, do they think that there's some sort of risk with Roth? And so that's why Seth is kind of like very intentionally like going after and making sure that he doesn't feel like an outsider because There's a lot of ways that the show wants us to compare Roth and Leah, but I actually think that the way that they approach things is like quite different. And like, I don't think that Roth was never on sort of like the risk scale that Leah was ever on. I want to talk about Josh's bag. You mentioned it when we were thinking a little bit about utility. And I think Josh's bag is a weird thing. We hear later on that they let, like, that Josh's parents paid for him to go. And so that's assumingly why he has this waterproof suitcase and access to all these things. But their solution was basically to let Josh bring all of this medication with him. But for the girls, it had to end up being, like, a flight bag that, like, floated up on the shore. But you have to assume there's a difference. There's, like, medication that you can put in that flight bag. Like, whatever it is. I can't think of what it is, but that's the halofen. The halofen that basically save them from the muscles that it would be weird for Josh to be traveling with. And so why was the choice made for it to be Josh's kit as opposed to something that washed up? Was it because they were worried that somebody was going to be suspicious? Because Leah would have been losing her mind if like any of the girls had that much medication in their bags. I mean, she lost her mind when the bag washed up on the beach and Shelby found it, right? And so it's it's a weird it's a weird choice I felt like for Gretchen to make, and I'm not sure like what her purpose was, especially if she wants things to be even between the experiments. This is a podcast so you can't see anything right now, but Rachel has she's she's put her hand in the air and she would like to say something. And I would like to say it strongly. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> All right. We are Leo Roke fans now? Yes. She did not lose her mind. She was expressing rightful opinion. And I'm just saying that if Leah was on the boys' island, like she was suspicious enough of this bag with all this medication that washed up that belonged to the pilot, how would she feel? Like she's suspicious enough of Shelby finding bags on the beach. How would she feel if Shelby's bag washed up and had mass amounts of medication in it? Well, it was a deus ex machina. Yes, but she is <laughs> she is suspicious later on when Jeanette's bag rolls up too, because that also had vodka. And but she's suspicious other stuff, of Shelby snacks. for finding it. She's suspicious of like, why does she have this shit? But she's also like, oh, this magical bag just showed up, and then she—that's when she has the lighter, and she's like, will another magical lighter just appear? And Nora tackles her because no, it will not. <laughs> Well, I think to some extent, it's also about when things come up that makes it suspicious. So, like, Fatten's bag came up first. And so... Well, you assume Josh's 
did too. He they have yeah. Josh's bag. Like I think in episode one, they all put on warm clothes. Yeah. So Fatten's bag was didn't even really wash up. It seems like it was just under the water on the shore. Part of my argument that Fatten was also paid. They paid to send same her there. Same suitcase. Same suitcase. Same kind of like location. Buoyant. Very easy to find because we did not see the boys going and grabbing stuff from the water in the same way we saw the girls. I think this is just kind of ties back to something I'm finding really hard about this season is just the lack of that day one foundation setting for yeah. all of the boys. I understand why they did it, maybe because they didn't want to have two same first episodes. Yeah. But on the other hand, we don't see a hint of suspicion, right? So it's just really hard to know what they're thinking about because we never saw... Until Leah and Roth are talking, that's when we learn the most about their whole plane ride, right? When she confirms everything with Roth. So I do just find that part really, really hard. And it's hard to have these conversations about Josh's bag for me without knowing more. Well, because your gut is to say that if you didn't see it, it didn't happen. Yeah. But there's always that little, like, worm of doubt in there about, like, maybe I just didn't see it. But I do think that, like, when I say that I don't think that they scavenge for stuff, we do see them get the slide and drag it at some point. So that's good. But there are no other bags. They've quickly run out of food. We don't really see them have a stockpile. It seems like they're mostly living off the food from Josh's suitcase. And the same thing could be said about the bunker that they stumble upon in this walk. Like, Leah probably would have been suspicious of this, like, fully stocked bunker that has some sort of history to it. That means that, like, this island has been, like, mapped or charted in some capacity before. Well, it's like when she found the pit and she's like, why the fuck is this pit here? Who dug this pit? Can you imagine if she found a full-on bunker? Let's talk more about it. Let's talk about this bunker. Yeah, the bunker's a weird thing. Number one, I think Seth deliberately brought absolutely okay good i didn't think you i so i think i think seth deliberately brought roth there there's too much weirdness when like seth's like i will we'll make you the snack guy then he kind of like leads him to the bunker and then like steps back and lets like roth sort of be like oh a bunker i just i think he knew it was there and so there's a bigger question about like why he would know it was there and the only thing that i can think of is it's a fail safe Like if something went really bad with the boys, Seth could lock himself in there. The same way that we know that Nora had a map of the island. Like it just, it just felt a little bit too, too coincidental. Just, and and Seth's being weird. He's being weird in the scene. Well, and there's a big parallel too, to when Nora leads Leah to a pit, right? Which is kind of bunker-esque in some regards. She knew it. She kind of mapped it. And the words that she uses when she leads Leah there are just know you're kind of safe here. And I feel like, too, like having a pit is like a place that you could stick someone if something went wrong, similarly with a bunker. Like you could put someone in like a timeout (laughs) until someone came and got them. Yeah. (laughs) A timeout seems like quite a minor language for why would you would throw someone down a pit? But okay, as you wish. But I will say the bunker is quite fortuitous for them. There's like a lot of shit in it. Almost like an unfair amount of stuff if we're trying to compare the two experiments. Uh, things that they find in the bunker are there's food, there's water, there's basically like a billion documents related to like a wildlife study from 2006 about birds, which is a weird Nora callback because Nora sketches birds all the time. Uh, there's beer. There's also like a lot of other like microscopes and stuff like that, but the boys never really explore those things. So, you know, whatever. <laughs> they're not. They're not. Doesn't matter. <laughs> they're not looking at uh, things under the mic. 
They also don't decorate with the birds. Like I'm a little bit mad about the that. The girls would have decorated. So, there would be there'd be absolutely. whole decor going on. But uh, it's there's like a, some good stuff in there. Like and there's some like non-perishable food in there that really kind of like gets them out of a situation because like I said it's day 12 they haven't hunted. They have no food. And this is really like a saving grace thing to them. Yeah, I played down like the line of thinking of like, would I drink that beer if I was in that situation? Because like beer kind of goes bad. Yeah, I I did a whole, you can drink it. So I did a whole research because I was like, this beer is like really fucking old. Can you even drink this? This is like 14 years. You can. It's just the taste changes and it might go flat and it might not taste good. But generally speaking, if it was like preserved properly, it will not make you sick. Right. Well, and it's. Would I drink it though? Probably not. I don't know. I'm a bit of a beer snob. So I don't know. I'd have to really think about it. But of course, like when you're at that age, you'll drink whatever, right? Like, Mm -hmm. and also it was underground. So you think it would be a little bit cool because I can't drink warm beer. I I don't like it. It also stays longer. I learned this in my thing if it's cool. But anyways. Okay. Well, look at this. I do want to take just a second to talk about the difference between Henry and Dot. And I think this really fits in this period of time because Seth is talking quite a bit with Roth about it. I think, you know, arguably, they're the two people on the island who were put there because of their survival knowledge. They're the two who have the most information. There's a bit of a difference for them too. Like we have like Henry, who is a Boy Scout, who has sort of like, you know, would have been taken out on the land, like would have like done like sort of like a lot of like wilderness skill buildings. You don't get your badges, generally speaking, from just like reading about something. But then you have Dot who has sort of like things that are a little bit more like survival TV sort of based. And so there's that kind of like long-term versus short-term versus tension that kind of exists. And I think it comes out a couple of places this season. Like number one, later on when we get mad at Susan, they're salting and preserving the meat, which Henry would have led as like a Boy Scout is something that he would have learned. But in like a lot of like Dot's more short term television series, that might be something that she's never seen someone do. So she never would think about them preserving their meat. So there's a little bit of this like tension that exists in there. There's also a bit of a tension because Seth shares a bit of knowledge this episode around like what berries to eat, what berries you can't eat. And he says that he learned that from Henry. But he also like kind of references the fact that he doesn't know very much. And it's very different from Nora, who kind of like came to the island super prepped. Like she had clearly done research. She had learned a bunch of things about tides and like survival information. Not as maybe as practical as Dot had, but she had done her research. But Seth didn't. He just kind of came and he said, why have Henry here? And there's that little bit of like hubris in it where he's like more concerned about the power that he has over the group, over like the utility he has for the group. The boys really mimic that back because Dot is really valued by the girls. She's constantly put in leadership roles. They really value her knowledge and her experience. And conversely, on the other side, Henry is not. Henry is the only person who kept them alive for a huge bunch of times, but they never value what he did. And I think it's bullshit. I too think it's bullshit. (laughs) It's just also interesting in the context of the conversation we had earlier about power. Because Mm -hmm. they place Dot in a position of power Mm -hmm. without her really wanting to ever be. And that's what leads to their first vote, right? When they want Dot to make the decision and Shelby says, no, stop. Like, Mm -hmm. we should vote on it because no one should have to make the decision. Similarly, when they transition the power between Dot and Rachel, Rachel says, well, we always ask you. And it's this thing where it's like, there's a lot of trust there. And 
there's power there, but like the girls just kind of give that power to her because they think that she's their best chance of keeping them alive. Whereas knowledge doesn't always equal power in mm-hmm. the context of the boys' island. The last kind of series of scenes that we see of the boys on their sort of island is they're all kind of sitting around hungry and cold. They're having a terrible time. They find out in that moment that Josh kind of has some back snacks <laughs> stuck in his bag. Some kids! In particular, some kids. And also that he has a lighter. Kieran loses his shit a little bit about this. Um, namely, more specifically, about the lighter and about, you know, they're now 12 days in. This lighter has never emerged. They could have had a fire. They could be in way better spirits. However, right in the nick of time, Rolf and Seth appear with the food, with the beer. Um, Seth sort of lets Rolf take the glory in that moment. And the boys drink and they party and they celebrate as though they were being rescued as opposed to having some spam and like a 2-4 of beer. I mean, that's not the, that wouldn't be the worst Friday night I've had. Uh, yeah. Things I don't like. I don't like that they call it lifeblood. I don't know what it is about it, but I don't like it. And this is the first of many instances, maybe there's only two, but at least two instances where there's like a lot of chanting and celebrating. It's a bit overwhelming, though, like Roth on repeat. So I didn't like that either. Too much chanting and don't like the word the lifeblood. I don't like it. I don't know what it is. Well, it's interesting because Roth doesn't know what that word means in the same sense when Seth finds the beer. He thinks Roth, it's water. He thinks it's water. And then, but he kind of like takes that word and uses it once again to build that sort of rapport with Kieran. I didn't because, like that either. Yeah. he's Well, he's trying, but Roth is like trying on a bit of a persona and that persona is Seth's persona to try and fit in. So he's trying to, once again, like you were talking about throwing a bunch of things at a wall, trying to figure out what sticks and what's going to really solidify his relationship in the group. It's also interesting because it, we're going to talk with the girls in just a second, which I'm so thrilled for. Um, but Leah talks about like blood circulating too in this episode and how her blood wanted to circulate. And it's these kind of differing concepts of being alive. And so for the boys, it's sort of this like celebratory thing. But for the girls, like Leah's like clawing herself back from like a very terrible traumatic situation. So the things that are happening between these two groups are inherently different. Things pick up for us on the girls' island four days after the end of episode one. Leah, in sort of the aftermath of her suicide attempt, is kind of laying catatonically. We find out that she hasn't slept in four days. And we also learn a little bit of backstory that the girls had kind of found her and saved her. And the girls are sort of shift-watching her. There's a lot of frustration in the group, um, a lot of upset, and a lot of, I think, like, unexplored feelings around that which I'm excited to kind of talk about a little bit. Fatten in particular is is lashing out quite a bit and saying she's she's done with Leah and Rachel really takes this as a moment to step up and she takes Leah gets her up off the ground and they go off um on a bit of a side adventure. Um during this they they do some collecting of seaweed. They have some apologizing that happens from both of them which is like such growth and they also kind of like understand and see each other in a way about what they both need and the ways that they're both struggling and what they both need to be well. And so they talk a little bit about how much better they feel when they're doing things. And then they see something out in the water and they swim to go get it. We started talking about this last episode, but I'm like a little bit disappointed in the way that we handle sort of what happened with Leah. It's like pretty serious, right? 
And so Leah later says that she doesn't think that she actually was trying to kill herself. She just kind of wanted everything to stop. And regardless of all of those things, like it's still like a very, like it's a very serious sign of her kind of like declining mental health and like the ways that she's struggling. And I feel like a lot of the ways that the show handled this was a bit surface level. Like we do see that frustration and I do understand it's coming from a deeper place, but we also miss a lot of perspectives on this. Like number one, Shelby should be really messed up about this because Mm -hmm. it should have taken her right back to what happened with Becca. They all should be really messed up, especially this close to what happened to Nora. And this is just this big thing that happened that we kind of deal with a little bit this episode and then it sort of gets brushed away a little bit. And I just wish we had explored this more because I think there's a lot of ways that individually people would have reacted to this and also a lot of ways that this should have like helped bring them together in the same way as like when Rachel fell into that sinkhole. Like, But instead we just sort of get this, there's a lot of fear, especially from people like Tony and Dot, but there's also a lot of like anger from Fatten. But I just feel like we never really got to unpack those emotions in a tangible way. And on the one hand, they are taking some care for her in the way that they organize themselves and they create like a shift schedule. But on the other hand, it's Rachel who's the first person that really addresses it and acknowledges it. And in the context of an apology, because she's worried that she might have said something that pushed Leah over the edge, which Leah says was not the case at all. But it's like very weird. It's great growth, don't get me wrong. But it's very weird that like it's Rachel apologizing because Leah did come at her hard. I don't really know if she needed to apologize. I think it's a nice gesture, but it's just very interesting that like the only time it's kind of acknowledged is in that context. I also think like per your comment about Shelby that like Tony might should maybe be triggered too. Like she had quite the reaction to like Martha taking pills. And so like using benzos, for example, you would think that she might feel some type of way about it as well. And so, yeah, I don't think there was a lot of care put into this. And I don't really know to what extent it like moved the plot along. Like there's a couple things this whole season where I don't think there was enough care put into it. And I don't really think it serves a purpose. Yeah. Well, there's if the purpose had been for Rachel and Leah to kind of go off on their own, like Leah could have just been like in her head, not doing well. And Rachel could have pulled her away. Like they brought in something that is a big thing. And then they just didn't really unpack it. And I agree. It feels like one of those things where I'm like, what was the purpose behind this there were other ways to show that leah wasn't doing well well they've shown them before too right like we've seen her go into the water like multiple times and the only thing i can think of is like if it was a test for her suspicions like a final test to be like there's something here there's something watching us what will happen if this happens to me kind of in the way that she kind of alludes to to some extent when she goes into the water like we'll just keep swimming until i get rescued kind of thing right in season one yeah so like that's the only like thing i can kind of think about but it never comes back to that and it's never even mentioned in any of the post island scenes either so i don't know what it's about yeah it does put us in the place where all the benzos are gone Yes. Which becomes a little bit important later on with stuff with Martha. Martha. But I think that there were other ways we could have done that. It's just, yeah, it's just something that a lot more care needed to be given to it. And it just, it didn't receive that kind of care. 
I agree with you that like Rachel going and getting Leah is like champion behavior. Like she's just like, I'm not going to sit around here and be pitied. And she's very happy to kind of take Leah. It really reminds me of something Nora would have done. And so I feel like she's channeling a little bit of like Nora in that and trying to like nurture Leah. And I think there's a lot of ways this season that Rachel is a bit of a different or softer version of herself. And like for me, I feel like a lot of that has to come from her connection with Nora and like her working through the grief of losing Nora and thinking about like what are the things that Nora wants from her and because in particular when she's apologizing to Leah and I agree she didn't need to but she's apologizing for being too hard which is something that you know Nora would probably tell her that she's doing I also saw someone say because Rachel wears her hair down all this season well maybe the reason she doesn't like wear her hair up is that she doesn't want to ask anybody to help her put her hair up and that like hurt my heart so bad i once side side story note on the podcast i once uh, had a pumpkin carving accident at work (laughs) (laughs) and i like ran a knife into my hand um like cut really deep into one of my fingers trigger warning yeah so like just easy on the details yeah i won't get too much into it very gross had to get a bunch of stitches but anyways rachel had to do my hair a bunch of the time because i would want to wear it a ponytail but like could not use one of my hands to do that and so anyways it just like just made me sad thinking about rachel reed like not having not feeling comfortable asking for help from someone in those ways and we see little moments of this throughout like she tries to tie her shoes and she gets frustrated because she only has one hand and but that's another one of those things that we really should have explored more but it's just really peripheral yeah it's similarly when she gets frustrated doing limbo because like her balance is all out of whack too, yeah right yeah it's just yeah it's just something that we should have explored a bit more and and i'm a i'm a bit disappointed in the way that the girls were written to react to this scene because i do think like leah deserves a lot of care and i'm glad that rachel gives her that care but I would have liked to see that care coming from other places as well, or at least an exploration as to why people were not giving her that care. Well, it doesn't align with what they were saying in the bunker about how after what happened with Nora changed them and made them more of a family. It especially doesn't align with what Leah said. Now, it could be argued that might be a test for Leah, the detectives to say, well, you attempted suicide after that. Like, how does that fit into this family narrative you're telling us? So that could be the case, but we don't learn that, right? So I, while I can like try to like theorize it away, I don't actually know if it, there was the thought put into it because it just doesn't feel thoughtful. Yeah, I agree. I do like my dream team coming back together, Rachel and Leah. Love to see that too. Oh, I cannot I know. wait for next episode. <laughs> I know. We're in a, I, there's so much joy coming, coming to us soon. But I do like them coming back together. And they're another example of right person, right time and talking Mm -hmm. to the right person at the right time, because both of them are really struggling to keep demons at bay, different demons, but in a way that like they understand each other, they need the same thing. So both of them need that that piece of utility and they find ways to be able to like work together and stride forward together in a really, really beautiful way. The parallel for them when they're swimming out for the box to what happened in season one when they went to the plane and the idea of them both swimming to get this thing, but doing it in a totally different way and in a totally different space and perspective and relationship was just beautiful. And I loved that. While all this is happening, there's some more stuff that's going on with Tona, Martha, and Shelby, our, our little friendship triangle that's been kind of existing across these two seasons. 
We start off seeing Martha and Shelby going hunting. Shelby shares during those moments that she's there to kind of check on Martha at Tony's request. Martha gets understandably a little bit upset about that, but kind of brushes it off with Shelby, but does bring it up later when she's talking to Tony. And she shares with Tony that she's upset about what Tony possibly could have told Shelby, whether that's, you know, something that doesn't matter or does matter, but basically says that she doesn't want Tony to talk about her to Shelby at all. So once again, she doesn't want that... She doesn't want people talking about her when she's not there as a part of the conversation. Tony isn't mad about this, though. She just kind of gives Martha a lot of respect for sort of standing up for herself in that place. Yeah, the comment I wrote in my margins is that not everybody is ready for gay aunties. You know, (laughs) like, and I think the, the quote that Shelby says to Martha is, we just want to be there for you. I think that's part of the problem is that it's like the conceptualization of we because we was always Martha and Tony. Mm-hmm. And in the same way that Tony reacted to Martha and Shelby being a we, there might be coming around in that reversal of that when it's like, no, like we're the we. You and me, Martha, Tony, we're the we. I do think there's a little bit in there too with Martha not wanting to be spoken about. Tony knows this big thing about Martha. Mm-hmm. She knows about what happened to Martha, the trauma that's connected to it. And there's always this danger when you tell someone a story where you sort of lose control of that story and you lose control about when others hear it, um, when it's shared, and also the pieces of it that are shared or the way that it's kind of portrayed. And so I think there's a little bit of fear in there too that this new sort of relationship might end up with Tony sharing something about Martha that Martha's not ready to share She's really struggling this season and we see it. It's really like peripheral, but it is there as she's trying to like work through these things and that fear about those things coming out before she's ready for them to come out is like very palpable as as the season kind of goes on. Well, and it's, it's interesting in the concept of what you said about control of story because she's already not had control over her story because yeah. it was a public trial. And she's not even the one who reported it. Somebody else reported yeah. it and it got drug out, right? She, yeah. Yeah, exactly. So um, it makes sense why she would want to protect it and why she'd be nervous about it. I was glad to see Shelby hunting, although Shelby's still in her like dumb love bubble. And so she's just like traipsing around the woods, just like cracking sticks. Like it's such a contrast to the goat hunt that we see at the end of season one, where Shelby like finds scat and is like, this is scat and like starts like sharpening her spear to like go hunting this goat and like really takes that leadership role. She, she stands back a lot from Martha and... I, I do think it's like a weird love bubble thing, but like she just she doesn't have that sort of focus for anything this season until she breaks up with Tony and then that thing happens with Fat and sharing what she's been finding in the journal. Um, it does also lead us to our field note of the week, though, and I think this might be a good place to talk about it. Yes, it is, Allie. Allie, what is this week's field note of the week? The field note of the week that we picked for this week is number 157, and this is what it reads. Shelby, as we know, is a seasoned hunter who once shot down a 10-point buck. Her father had its head mounted and hung on the basement wall. Shelby doesn't enjoy the presence of it, this dead thing that she killed, but sometimes she forces herself to stare at it. Why she does this, she's not sure. Allie, if you could tell Shelby why she might stare at it, (laughs) what would you say? 
Yeah, I think Shelby has like a complicated relationship with the things that she feels that she has to do versus the things that she wants to do. And so the assumption is, is that like she was forced to go hunting as a relationship with her father, but she also caused harm in that situation. And so then having this trophy or this piece of memorabilia or this this thing that she has to look at is really it's a constant reminder of a piece of herself that maybe she doesn't like or a thing that she did that she doesn't like just brag about it a little bit but I think she like stares at it to force herself to remember that she can do that kind of harm and that she can hurt people like that sort of is like a bit of a like a reckoning in a way like you'd assume too similarly with Becca like you th- she's thinking on it she's she's thought a lot about the harm that she's caused she's made herself really sit with it and so similarly, like going and staring at this buck, she's not staring at it, I would assume, out of like an awe, like, oh, shit, look what I did. But more as like, a, this is something that I did. And I now have to like, carry that I did it, right? Like, or at least like, I have to reconcile that this is a part of me as well. That would be what I would say. What would you say? No, that was exactly my interpretation okay. as well. I didn't think you were going to get to the Becca. At oh, first, sorry. When you first started talking, I was like, <laughs> I was like oh my goodness, I have this idea and I felt all like excited, but then you got to it. Of oh, course. I'm sorry. No, it's okay. You're smart. I get it. <laughs> You're smart. But I think like, it's. Can I say something? Yeah, keep going. <laughs> I think it, it's so connected to the way that she responds to Martha in that scene, too. She kind of says to Martha, you know, she's trying to be like sympathetic, but she's like, you know, like, I know you put your values aside and you're taking on like so much so that we can eat. And like Shelby compares Martha hunting to this like big act of self-sacrifice, which is something she's like very intimately attuned to. I don't actually know if that's the way that it resonates with Martha. Because like in that moment, Martha isn't compromising her values by hunting. It's like a super one-dimensional way to kind of look at things. It's more like Martha's doing what she needs to do to survive and doing it in a good way and like is using like those tools that that she has and I think like like Shelby going hunting for this buck you'd assume like she didn't need the food so there is like a little bit more of like a trophy hunting element in it but what Martha's doing is pure sustenance hunting so it's a bit different but like Shelby's definitely in this moment projecting onto Martha the only other thing that I want to say is Tony later kind of like respects and understands Martha where she's coming from when she sets that boundary about talking about her to Shelby. And I think it's one of those instances this season where we see Martha really finding comfort and solitude. We see her isolate herself quite a lot. And I mean, it's questionable whether it's her trying to work through things or if it is a cry for help. I think it's a little bit of a combo of both. But Tony's kind of response is like very respectful, very understanding. Um, But it's one of those things that once again, I just wish we had more time to unpack because Martha only has very rarely we've seen like set a strong boundary with Tony, like after the shelter building contest is another good example of that. And there's usually a little bit more of like a fallout that's associated with that. But we just Tony just kind of like takes it into stride and accepts it. But I think there's a lot of ways that I would like us to like unpack sort of like this changing dynamic in the relationship between the three of them a little bit more. On a bit of a lighter note, Fatten and Dot also spend a bunch of this episode reading Martha's book, reading it out loud too, which is lovely. 
Tony also joins and they have sort of like a hilarious combo about weddings. Um, Tony is pro both the book and the wedding to I'm sure many people's surprise. What's really important though about this is Fatten takes a moment to sort of tease Dot about not being able to take a break or to quote unquote leisure. Yeah, I mean, I'm definitely here for the lighter moments. The only thing that's weird about this to me is Fatten creates the space for Dot to do leisure and like says something along the lines of, the shelter's built, all your people are here, it's time for you to leisure. And it's like, Leah is with Rachel, which is like an okay <laughs> Your people thing. are not here. But like, we weren't really like super confident in that dynamic or that duo, a dynamic duo, I would go so far yeah. as to say. Like, I don't really know if it's like quite time to do leisure, but like, I do think Dot deserves a break. And also like Dot's breaks are usually quite short lived. Yeah. Dorothy's story. Formal. (laughs) Dot's story is so interesting because it's about leisure, but like she kind of like falls into these like stereotypes of leisure, which I don't actually know if they're ever actually like what she would do for leisure, right? She like goes and sits on this beach and reads this book, which Fatten refers to as a hot little romp, which hilarious, fun, love it. Or she, you know, like goes and sits in the chair Her, like, the things that she does for leisure, I'm like, but I think Dot doesn't know what she needs to do to unwind. And so she she has a hard time kind of figuring out and finding those things. Whereas, like, in my head, I'm like, why don't you go fishing, Dot? Like, I feel like, I know there's utility tied to it, but I feel like maybe you would actually, like, enjoy that. But because Dot has always had responsibilities, has always had weight, has always had things that she has to do, it's like she has a hard time figuring out, like, what she actually likes. And so it's, it's almost like she's reading the book more because she feels like that is what you do to leisure. I will say one of my favorite quotes, I didn't end up picking it, but it was a big contender, was when she talks about how all reading is, is holding a heavy stack of paper over <laughs> your head and like moving your eyes back and forth, which like I really get. I really struggle to, to read. Now I read. I have to read for work, but now <laughs> all the time. Um, but now I like can read for leisure in short bursts. I enjoy it. I, <laughs> I mean, you don't sound like you enjoy it. Yeah, like I do like it, but I only like reading good things. It's like movies. I enjoy them, but I only want to watch a good movie. Yeah. I only want to read a good book. It's too much. Like it's a lot of paper to hold. I get it, Dot. Like it's a lot of paper to hold and a lot of eye movement if it's not going to be a, your cup of tea. Mm-hmm. It's also... <laughs> they only have one book, so yeah, they burn the other terribly. <laughs> so that's yeah. what they're stuck with. Bad bird job. Uh, It's also just interesting because like Rachel and Leah are finding their utility and finding like their their purpose and their need to have utility in the group. Whereas Dot's over here trying to back away and step away from that utility. And so it's this funny balance where they're navigating what does it mean for some of us to take a break while others of us are working and what does that look like and how does that play into like bigger overall concepts of being well. It's like where they're all pushing for Dot to take a break. But if you remember in season one, when Leah took a break, that was really the start of her spiral. That was really when she she started not doing well. So these concepts of breaks and leisures are always like a little bit tenuous to kind of manage. Other thing that I just want to say about this is Dot has a line, which is stranger in a strange land, which is like 
very parallel to Lost in a Lost Place, which both Roth and Leah say. So it's this concept of being unable to like reconcile like your your physical location with sort of like the things that are going on that are bigger than you. So I thought it was like a really nice kind of way to connect. Dot speaking a little bit more about like not knowing the people around her. And so in particular, Tony's at that moment talking about how she wants like a big wedding. But when Roth and Leah use it, their focus is a lot more on that lost place. So not on the fact that they're lost, but that they're in this this place that is outside of their control and has all of these kind of bigger, darker things happening as a part of it. I only have two comments to say, and both of them are jokes. Number one, you, you use tenuous again. Good Sorry. thing we defined it earlier. Mm-hmm. Secondly, I just like it when they make callback lines in the same episode. It's a lot easier for me, the audience. I got a lot in my head with all these characters and all these episodes. Mm-hmm. That's all. Good jokes. Great jokes. Thank you. I don't even know if they were jokes. They were they were quippy comments. Quippy comments. My quippy comment corner. The last kind of scene that we have for the girls, Leah and Rachel come back with the box that they retrieved from the ocean. Surprise, surprise, it is a party supply box for someone named Barbara's retirement party. And so there's a bunch of different things in here from cutlery to tablecloths to champagne to a pinata. And they kind of like open it and like it's sort of the setup of something that we'll we'll have a lot of fun with later this season. Whenever Leah laughs before she talks about Top Ramen, Allie and I also laugh. (laughs) A lot. She she has this like it's one of those like it's I don't even know it's just one of those laughs that like you can't help laughing it like bursts out of me like every time she has that like big kooky well and it's laugh. it's one of those things too where like the sound that she makes before she starts laughing is the same it's a callback sound if you will uh, sorry I didn't just say it all snobby <laughs> uh, it is it's a callback sound to before. She's t- confronting Shelby about like, isn't it a little bit suspicious that like blah blah blah? It's a it's a callback sound. I think I think we should put them together and compare them. But maybe we'll do that. But it, it's like it, you kind of you're almost unsettled a little bit because you're like, is she going to be suspicious of this or like what's going to come next? And it's also like we're still not sure how she's doing because we haven't spent the time to like see how she's doing either. Well, the girls are also a bit scared of it. Yes, like, which makes they are also sound. scared. Like all of them are looking at her like they don't know how this is going to go. They're expecting like a like a lighter sort of level explosion to happen. And then like when she starts laughing, they are all relieved to laugh with her. And it startles a laugh out of me. Um, also, is Barbara the new Marcus? Is that like, I guess not Barbara, Love but the, the pinata. The pinata. Is this the new Marcus? The pinata's name I wrote down. I can't oh, remember what no. it was. Because I, I, we read the name tag and it's like, it's essentially must have been Barbara's supervisor, which they talk about. But his name's Doug, I think. Something like that. Something like that. He's a shift supervisor. This scene is also where our episode title comes from, which is, this is a real heat check for me. Tony says it to Fatten because Shelby is like, just like losing her mind about the party supplies. I thought Fatten would be like the most person who was like who would go crazy in a Dollarama party supply aisle. I have changed my mind. It is definitely Shelby. Oh yeah. Yeah. I feel like we talked about that in season one. I think I feel like we've. We thought it was Fatten. We thought it was Fatten. We thought it was Fatten who would lose her lose her mind. See, this is why I appreciate it when callback lines are in the same episode. I can't keep anything straight. <laughs> 
Uh, it's also a nice basketball reference. So a heat check is when you feel like you might be hot and you make a lot of shots in a row, you like, you know, go a little bit extra, make a little bit more of a difficult shot to see if you're actually hot or not. So this is a real heat check for me. I, I did not know that. Yes. I don't know what I thought it was, but that's not what I thought it was. Well, it's a good thing I defined it. You didn't even ding, ding, ding for me. Ding, ding, ding. It was a bit difficult for us to pick our episode title for this because it's actually like a really well-written episode. Rachel pulled all the possible episode titles and like usually we have like five or six, but there was like 15 possible episode titles. Um, And we'd like to attribute that to Melissa Blake, who wrote this and who also wrote one of our favorite episodes of season one, which was episode six, right? Episode seven. Episode seven, Lynn's episode, yeah. And episode eight. And episode eight, yeah. Yeah. There's, There's just a lot of nuance to some of like the dialogue and things that happen and a lot of the characters I don't know they're just funny there's just like a lot of funny there's just funny yeah it's one of those things where like we've we've talked a bit about how there hasn't been some care in some respects and actually I think it's probably one of my least favorite episodes of season two not really much happens but the writing is what makes it still enjoyable to watch I kind of find like it is really well written it's it's almost like it feels like watching an episode of Gilmore Girls to some extent because there's so many references that you miss them and you need to rewatch it a couple of times so like I really like that kind of style of writing so Melissa Blake thank you for making a really nice episode out of like honestly not that much content yeah what I would say too I'm sure that like Melissa didn't have a choice about how much we dealt with what happened with Leah like I think it's there's like parameters that are set. One other thing about this. Did Gretchen send the box? Where did the box come from? I don't think Gretchen sent the box, but I don't know where the box is from either. My guess would be is that like, maybe they're not actually that far from like some sort of like recreational type of space and like somebody a had a, yeah, line. like a party boat or something. And it just fell off. Yeah, the one thing that I would say is I did go through and map out the boys' days versus the girls' days. And for the most part, like, some of the boys' days are different than the girls'. And this is obviously based on the day that Nora calls and Gretchen says that she has to wait because there's boats going out. That being day one for the boys. But that would mean that this episode in particular, day 34 and day 12, are actually the same day. Not all the other days make sense, but this would be actually the same day. So was it because the boys found the beer? The girls received something. Mostly I wanted to see if like the boy oh, really... could f- be. I yeah. like that. Mostly I thought that the boys really fucked up or something. And Gretchen was like, here, you all are the best. Here's a box of party supplies. But I'm like, was it to even the playing field? Because they were never supposed to have Lynn's vodka. That was like a the ocean gave that to them. But if like, I don't know. Was she trying to even the playing field? I don't know. Yeah. Or, or provide like a comparison. Like what do people make out of like opportunities, right? Mm-hmm. Like similar. Like what do they do? Mm-hmm. Well, they had blankets out of the tablecloths. They had mm-hmm. cutlery, but like, I think Shelby was just excited yeah. about that. Should we talk a little bit about the bunker scenes? Yes. So the last section we want to talk about is everything related to the experiment, most of which centers around Roth and Leah's time together in the bunker. Their conversation really serves as the narration for the episode. So some of these pieces we've already talked about. However, I will say the first thing that Leah establishes with Roth is all about the plane ride. She asks him, when you boarded, where did you think that plane was going? She confirms that there was cake. And one of my favorite quotes from this episode is, same sandals, same sweatpants, same nightmare. The other comment I want to say about this kind of early part of their bunker conversation is that Leah says, it's all a setup. This is not a Coast Guard station. This is a prison. 
And I felt very validated that it has been pitched <laughs> as a Coast Guard station. I don't believe it because of Dean saying that they were off the coast of Peru. And I feel like most Coast Guard stations are relatively close to said coast since they guard them. But I did feel extremely, extremely validated and vindicated. Essentially, their whole conversation throughout is them navigating to what extent they're going to work together. Leah really pitches it to him in a number of different ways. And his response is somewhat hesitant, but I think he feels like he doesn't really have the choice. Where they ended on is that she kind of promises that she's going to get them out of this situation. Yeah, the start of this where we we kind of hop from Roth is like dreaming that he's at the border guard and then the border guard starts asking him questions and then it's actually Leah asking him questions was so reminiscent of Martha's dream though, like where Lynn starts screaming, but then the screams are real and stuff. And so the way that the show plays with kind of that like reality versus dream world and sort of the blurring of those lines has always been really, really cool. And so Melissa Blake, Melissa Blake. Yeah, I guess. Cause that would have been, that would have been Lynn's episode. Oh, nice one. But anyways, I just think it's, I think there's, there's elements of like reality playing that happen. And I'm, we'll talk about it later with the Shelby thing that happens. I think it's uh it's a really cool sort of like narrative continuation. Leah's also so intense. Like when she's talking to Roth and I was like, you're gonna scare the boy, Leah. He doesn't know, like he doesn't get you. He yeah. hasn't spent fifty days with you. <laughs> but <laughs> it just reinforces like to do to the degree the boys are not um suspicious about the island. Like Leah's like, Did you have chocolate cake? And Roth's like, I don't fucking know, maybe. Like, but Leah's been like thinking about that chocolate cake and thinking about all the things that have happened. But it seems like it's something that maybe they never spoke about again. Well and all of his suspicions go towards Leah, right? Because he's been treating his past 34 days. Uh so the number of days the boy's been on the island 34 is also the day that the girls are on throughout this episode. So I just wanted to call attention to that. Mm. But they've also spent the past like 34 days not being suspicious about anything. And so... Then all of a sudden there's this girl in his room being like, tell me your story. Ours are the same. Yeah. So all of his like suspicion just gets funneled towards Leah. We kind of has like an interesting trust of authority too. Mm-hmm. Um, when Leah comes in and spooks him, his first move is like, I'm going to go get someone because right. you got something going on. But like, he still has that trust of the detectives. And even when you think about the interviews, like Scotty pushes back against them a little bit. Ivan's like a little bit difficult to interview. But Roth is like, other than talking about what happened with Josh, is like pretty forthcoming and discussing with them. And so he definitely still has that trust of them that obviously Leah's never had. I think it was interesting too, when Roth said that Leah wasn't coming off as crazy, she was coming off as afraid. We've never really heard anyone call her afraid before. Even the girls, they've always said, well, you're being suspicious or you're, you know, thinking too much about this. You're going too deep into this. No one has said that she seems afraid before that's never a word that i've ever really even associated with leah and i guess like there must be some fear in this because she's a part of this like insane machine that's stranded her on an island and could have killed her but it's it's an interesting word choice for roth to use what's even just an interesting consequence for leah so like what is she afraid of Mm -hmm. she talks in an episode about how she has like now she has two interesting things that happened to her and one of which is that she's on this deserted island i just think it's interesting because 
all the girls, when they thought the plane was going to be rescued, like, all had different reactions. And, like, some folks had real reasons to be afraid or excited. And so I just think it's interesting to, to think about what is she afraid of. Well, is she actually afraid, though, or is that just Roth's perception of her? That's that's what I'm saying, is yeah. that, like, I don't actually know if she's afraid because... Because yeah. she, at the end of the day, she's still a young girl, but, like, I, I don't think afraid is the right... It's the right it's way not to the right characterize. Word. But I think it, it says more about Roth than it does about Leah, that he sees her, he sees this person who says, we're in a bad situation... And we need to get out of it. And he's like, you're afraid. Mm. And does that speak more to like how he would feel in that situation? And like Leah moves very quickly into like into being a doer. Like she's just like, I'm going to like, I'm going to figure this out. Um, and I'm going to play the system and I'm going to get everyone out. And she never really is afraid because I think she does have that confidence that like she has everything she needs to get out of this situation. There's a bit of an interesting dance that happens between Rolf and Leah around trust, too. He asks for her name and uses her bracelet to then verify it. Feels like a little bit of, like, callback to Seth and Seth telling him things that weren't true. And, like, he needs to, like, verify this kind of very basic point about her. But you can imagine how challenging it would be for him. Like, this person just shows up and says all the stuff is going on. But he has... He has no kind of proof. Like even like Fatten didn't believe like Leah and then like started to find proof and pieces of proof. And so Rafa's has like none of that. Um, and so it makes sense that he's kind of exploring trust, but I don't know if it means the same thing to her as it does to him. The part about names comes back again hmm. too, right? Yeah. Where he introduces himself as Roth and, you know, doesn't accept any other things. Very similar to what he does with the detectives. And he checks for Leah's name as well. Yeah, this naming piece comes back again as a bit of a theme for something that's, you know, kind of a central component of the show and wanting to know each other's real name. And marking people as important, I guess. Like yeah. He's, like Leah's important enough or he's recognizing that she's important enough to learn her name. And she she gives him trust, but it feels a little bit more like because she has to. She questions him a couple of times. In particular, she has some fear and skepticism about him being quiet and sharing that he was quiet because to Leah, silence is dangerous. And it's, you know, the silence or the quietness that she saw from Nora, who she perceives as this threat, is a fascinating contrast to the boys who found a bit more danger in those that were loud. Like Seth is like Mm. a particularly kind of like loud. He takes up a lot of space in contrast to Nora. And he was sort of the danger. He was the Confederate, but also a dangerous person on that island. Right. And so it's interesting the ways that they both identify different sorts of threats or even we have a lot of monologues where they both talk about monsters and it's starting to set those seeds of different concepts of what it means to be a monster as well. I also interpreted her comment about being quiet almost as her own awareness and she Mm. plays with her own awareness in a couple of ways. She says to Roth that awareness has to count for something and I am aware that I sound ridiculous essentially. Mm -hmm. She says that to him but I also think it's kind of funny that she talks to him about, well, being quiet or being off by yourself, like in my context, it's a risk because she's also like that. It was I guess, her and yeah, Nora, when right? She's, when she's like wandering the woods by herself or like doing her own things, she has like her piano thing going on, like yes. So it's I think that's its own awareness too, mm. is that she sees that like she's a little bit dangerous, perhaps too. The last piece of Roth and Leah's bunker slash the experiment 
is when we see Leah leave the space, she's being chased by an orderly or a nurse. Kind of chased. Kind of chased. Loosely chased. But she ends up where Daniel is. And this is when we hear that monologue that we heard in the trailer about having a great story for him. In the conversation she has with Daniel, she questions how and why she was able to spend that much time with Roth and equates it to saying that they need something from him, something that they can't get from him that they think that she might be able to get. Where we end it is Leah walking over to the glass. Leah and Gretchen are face to face and Gretchen draws a smiley face. Good moment. Like them being face to face for the first time. Also, like, Leah freely walking the halls is everything I ever needed in my life. And also just, like, sticking it to Dan. Fuck that guy. Yeah, for sure. Well, we hate Dan, so. I think, like, I have a bit of a question in here, which is, like, Leah has a key card we learn later and, like, could go into any room. And so you think she'd figure out pretty quickly that the boys' doors are yellow and their doors are red. So, like, why did she go into one of the boys' room? Like, why wouldn't she go find one of the girls? Well, I have a bit of a theory about this. Yes. It's not a well-formed theory. My question more is that, like, what would have happened if Leah went to any other room? Mm -hmm. Whether it was the girls or whether it was the boys? And part of me wonders if there was some effort. I don't know what. Like, I don't know if her key card only worked Mm -hmm. in some things. But to get her to Roth's room. Or at least definitely keep her there. There was an intentional choice to keep her there. The reason I say that is when we see it play out, that it is important and they think Roth might be the person to maybe help them. But also Gretchen sees Roth as important. He's the one that she wants to start out with. That's true. And so I don't know how they arranged it to it be the two of them, but, and maybe there, and maybe it's something with Dean, who knows? Because like I, I the comment about the Coast Guard station, to me, when I reflected back on that, I feel like Dean and Leah might have been working together since he gave that locational clue way back long ago. So maybe they have already worked together and maybe she identified him for some reason or said that you can use this for something. Who knows? Well, when he tells her that he left the phone for her in the toilet, she never questions that it's a trap. She just gets the phone and follows the instructions on it. Yeah. Yeah. So we see them communicate in that context again because he escorts her back and intercepts her and that's when we get to the phone. So something I think was manufactured for it to be the two of them because I don't know if any other two people, if any other pairing, except for maybe the girls, but any other pairing of the girls and the boys would have yielded the same outcome, which goes back to the experiment within the experiment theory. Because Who's playing who? Who's playing who and Gretchen with the smiley face mm-hmm. against Leah. She was happy about it. Yeah, just before I before I respond, I want to say that like the thing that I just said about Dean putting the phone in the top of the toilet, uh, also just credit to Rachel because like I'm dumb and was like <laughs> super confused. I was like, but how did the phone get in the toilet? And Rachel's just like, when we were watching it, Rachel's just like very nicely sat me down and was like, this is what happened. And I was like, oh, okay, cool, because I missed that. Um, I agree though, I think they're using Leah in a certain way and like you can at least Gretchen is maybe not Dan like I don't know if Dan the psych man is kind of like in on that because he seems like pretty annoyed that Leah's kind of like circumventing the system but Gretchen for sure in some ways is using Leah or is like trying to work Leah to her benefit I do think that there are other boys that probably Leah could have cracked but I think that you're right 
Gretchen has flagged that Roth is special and that Roth is the person that they should work to break. And was right. Like Roth, like Roth almost told Leah, right? And But also maybe she could tell or see that he was a bit more conflicted about what happened. There also was obviously he was at the heart of what happened with Seth. And so she was at the heart of something that broke in that moment. And so she would have to kind of know and understand that too. I think that's it. Um, we need to do quote of the week though. Yes. My quote of the week is short, sweet, and by someone with the same name as me, Rachel. <laughs> in case in case you did not understand where this was going. Yes. And the quote is, I'm not going to sit here being pitied. Let's go. I just love this one because it's a shift and it signals a shift and it prefaces again the right people coming together at the right time and recognizing strengths and opportunities as they come about. And I just love Rachel taking the opportunity to pull Leah out of a situation and Leah goes and then they have this whole other kind of arc together. I also just love what it leads to finding Barbara's case, for example, the two of them going on that other adventure, as you talked about earlier, and just the leadership characteristics that Rachel always has to motivate and mobilize people coming out again. I just really appreciated that. And that's why it's my quote of the week. That's beautiful. My quote of the week, while I really did want it to be, Barbara, you're a fucking legend. (laughs) (laughs) Honorable mention. Honorable mention for that. Um, The quote that I ended up choosing was, you've gotten so strong, you're like a fucking warrior, which is a quote that Tony says. And we did see it as a part of the the kind of like startup trailer and, and some of the teasers and things that came out. But I think it like speaks to this this growth that's happening with Martha that's really important and also the recognition of that growth. And for Martha, who's a character who doesn't get a lot of recognition overall for some of the things that she does, speaking to sort of that growing role she's having in the group. And also to this this view that Tony has of her where she can see where she came from and see where she is now and understand the strength that it took her to get there. Martha is a really strong character who often doesn't get credit for being strong. She doesn't get credit for the work and the strength that she has, for what it took for her to walk again, for what it took for her to kind of like move through everything that happened to her. And so her getting a piece of that like heart understanding is just really beautiful to see. I almost picked though, I forgot that my blood wants to circulate. Of course you did, Leah. (laughs) (laughs) That was a very, very close real second. Uh, The last thing that we normally do is our deserted island partner of the week. Allie, can you remind me what our criteria are? So Deserted Island Partner of the Week is an award we give out every episode, specifically to the person that we would want to be trapped with on a deserted island. So our criteria for it is who kept everyone alive, who kept everyone sane, who was the island's MVP, and just for fun, who best embodied Dusty's Child Survivor. We normally do a one, two, three, and then we'll debate it until there is only one person remaining. So I know my person, so we'll go... One, two, three, go. You got it. All right. One, two, three, Rachel. Oh, I love yes. it when this happens. Oh, good. Good. Why'd you We've pick Rachel? We've been chatty today. We have so been, yeah. It's good when we agree on this. It's good this. when we agree. Why'd you pick Rachel? Listen, I've got three reasons. Leah, seaweed, Barbara suitcase. <laughs> she took Leah aside. They weren't being pitied. 
They apologized. Yes. They expressed some growth. <laughs> they also collected seaweed and did some growing while they were collecting seaweed. Seaweed you can eat. Mm-hmm. That's exciting. Mm-hmm. I would want to be trapped on a deserted island with someone who would feed me things that are reminiscent of sushi. <laughs> Lastly, <laughs> Barbara's suitcase. Is it a suitcase? I'm not sure. It's definitely a case. It's a tote. A tote of sorts. They went on an adventure. They found some partying supplies. All you need is three reasons. These are three, three strong ones. <laughs> Good. Why did you go with Rachel? I think that Rachel often pushes the movement on the island forward, but this episode was one of those ones where Rachel like emotionally cared for someone, and so it was a different kind of leadership from her. And I think like if I was on a deserted island, I would want someone to show me the amount of care that Rachel showed Fair. to Leah. I think everyone was a little bit... They didn't really know what to do with Leah after what happened. And Rachel was the person who really kind of like saw Leah, understood, and then just did it. She just went out and did it. And like you said, got food. They swam out and got this tote worth supplies. But more than that, it's really centered on all of the growth that we're seeing with her as a person and the way that she's speaking to Leah and the self-awareness that she has over the ways that she needs to grow or wants to grow or the person she wants to become. I just think that like she would keep me alive. She would keep me fed. She would also keep me sane. And uh, I am so pleased to say Rachel Reed, season two, episode two, Deserted Island Partner of the Week. Woohoo! Woohoo. All right, that's it. Thank you everybody for joining us for this episode. It was lovely chatting about season two, episode two with you. Uh, It'll be two weeks until we drop our next episode, but in the meantime, if you want to reach out, connect, chat, theorize, feel free to reach out to us on our social media. All of our handles are in the episode description. Um, But otherwise, that's it from us, and we will talk to you in a couple of weeks. Thanks, everyone. Bye. Bye, everyone.